Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast for episode 58 and part two on busting nutrition myths with Alan Aragon. I am so excited to bring you guys this podcast today because Alan is a legend in the field of nutrition science and he shares his wealth of knowledge with you all today. So I hope you guys are as excited as I am for part two of this podcast. Now, just in case you haven't heard of Alan Aragon, he is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 20 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry industry's movement towards evidence-based information. Alan writes a monthly research review on his website, providing cutting-edge theoretical and practical information, and his work has been published in popular magazines as well as peer-reviewed scientific literature. Alan co-authored Nutrient Timing Revisited, the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, and he's also the lead author of the ISSN Position Stand on Diet and Body Composition. Alan maintains a private practice designing programs for recreational, Olympic and professional athletes and of course regular people striving to be their best self. You can find Alan on his website which is alanaragon.com or his Instagram which is at thealanaragon. Today is part two of the Nutrition Myth Busting Podcast with Alan so if you missed part one please go back and listen to that one first. And in today's podcast we start by discussing paleo and keto diets and their long-term health success. We then talk about protein amounts of fat loss and muscle gain, how you can lose fat and gain muscle mass simultaneously. We discuss dairy and inflammation and if there's any research around that. We discuss highly processed foods and flexible dieting, biohacking your health. And finally, Alan gives his tips for following credible people online. Now, just quickly, before we start this podcast, I wanted to take a moment to let you know of a very time-sensitive business offer. In fact, the biggest business deal of 2020. If you're a business owner, a professional, a corporate worker, a boss, a CEO, or if you just dream of being an online social media influencer or business owner, this epic business bundle is for you. It contains 72 courses at a 99% discount. You heard right, 99% off. There is no catches, guys but it is a time-sensitive offer for only eight days. And once it's gone, it's never coming back. The 72 business-focused courses together are valued at over 18,500 USD. But I've teamed up with some of my favorite business creators to bring you guys the most epic business bundle at 99% off. So instead of $18,500, you guys can purchase all 72 courses for only 100 USD. That is 72 cents per course. And if you use my own unique affiliate link, I will also send you my two courses. The first one on how to grow and scale on Instagram and my second course in how to gain 100K following in six months on TikTok. Both my courses alone are worth $228, so you will get them both for free as part of this epic business deal if you've used my unique link. Once you purchase the business bundle, email me your order number so I can confirm that you've used my unique link and then I'll send you both of my courses for free. Remember guys, this business bundle is a time-sensitive offer. It's gone in eight days after this podcast goes live. So if you're listening in time and you want to purchase it by my unique link, please visit http 
semicolon forward slash forward slash bit dot do bit dot do forward slash Leanne Ward bundle or simply click the hyperlink in the show notes. Now let's jump into today's podcast part two on busting nutrition myths with Alan Aragon. Welcome, Alan, back to the podcast. I am so excited to have you back on again, talking all things nutrition myth-busting today. Thank you so much, The Leanne Wood. <laughs> Guys, if you want to follow Alan on um, social media, it is at the Alan Aragon. We had a great <laughs> chat in the first podcast. I was saying that I very much like the fact that the handle Alan Aragon was already taken, and I actually love the fact that he's the Alan Aragon, because if you know anything about him, he is just the like the magician in terms of the research and nutrition space. So he's definitely one to follow on social media. Media, but make sure you're following the correct Alan Aragon, which is the Alan Aragon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me good. Thank you. Now let's deep dive straight away into carbs, keto, and um, some long-term, I guess, health results. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the research and science around low-carb diets, but also around keto diets. Because I feel like I get a lot of people that say to me, keto is the only way to do it. I've never lost weight before. I had to do a keto diet to lose weight, but it's like, they don't understand that the weight loss came from a calorie deficit, not the fact that they cut out the carbs. The carbs weren't the bad guys. But maybe for some, a ketogenic diet helps them you know, maintain that um, calorie deficit a little bit better. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around, um, I guess, even the difference between the low carb, the keto, and the just, I guess, including carbohydrates for fat loss as well. Yeah. Defining um, ketogenic diets versus low carb diets, uh, in the literature, it, it, the most common definition of a ketogenic diet is um, anything that's roughly 50 grams of carbs and below. Mm. So typically above that, all the way up to about 150-ish grams of carbs, then that would qualify as low carb. And then it gets even more nebulous when people say... Um, or, or actually, when when researchers classify low carb diets as anything forty five percent of total calories and below as low carb, and then of course the keto folks rage against that definition of low carb <laughs> because they're thinking, okay, well it ain't low carb if it ain't keto. So let's just establish the definition of keto being um, fifty grams of uh, usable carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and below, not fifty grams of fiber. Uh, even though we we know that fiber still provides some metabolizable energy, if we're going to get all technical. Mm-hmm. But um, but yes. So with ketogenic dieting, uh, the in quotes superpowers of ketogenic dieting uh, lie in its ability, at least temporarily, uh, and 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 at least in some subjects to control hunger, to reduce appetite. Uh, And then that leads to eating less total energy or total calories um, by the end of the day. And in the literature, the range of of lower calories that the ketogenic diet group eats versus the, uh, the control group or the conventional diet group can be pretty substantial. Sometimes they spontaneously reduce their caloric intake by 500-ish calories or more. I've seen up to 900 calories of spontaneous uh, caloric intake reduction on keto. Mm-hmm. And this is what imparts the uh, the weight loss advantage. And in studies that do, in quotes, ad libitum keto, where they don't uh, assign a specific uh, restriction of calories, um, they just give a list of foods and say, this is what you can eat and this is what you can't eat, mm-hmm. then it rather elegant, elegantly ends up uh, 
increasing the protein in the person's diet alongside of uh, decreasing the carbs, alongside of decreasing some of the problematic uh, variety that, that some folks have in their diet with uh, junky foods. Um, and then it just cuts out a lot of options and basically corners them into weight loss. So that's all well and good. That's fine. Okay. Appetite suppression. Great. Less hunger. Great. A little bit more protein. Wonderful. But the big question becomes how long can people sustain that? Mm. And what would be some of the consequences from, for, for some people with, with goals that are not conducive to keto. And so those are kind of the questions that we would have to look at. Because even in populations for whom ketogenic dieting would benefit, so populations with insulin resistance, populations with um, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, even in those populations, they can't seem to sustain um, the 50 gram a day limit. Mm-hmm. So even in these highly motivated populations conducive to this type of intervention, even those guys can't sustain it. Uh, and there are exceptions in the literature as well. Some people point to the Verda research, but you know the Verda research, uh, you're, you're tying to a community, you're tying to constant accountability, and you're tying mm-hmm. yourself to a, um, a, an app. <laughs> and so it's a different game there. There's other elements going on where people can have greater su- success at sustaining that. But with ketogenic diets, there's nothing particularly magical about uh, going into ketosis that will allow you to better reduce your body fat mass. It's just that in some people, it reduces appetite. And um, and that's kind of the, in, in quotes, the superpower of keto. And when people get highly enthusiastic and highly zealous about keto, uh, you will, you'll get some people saying, well, it's totally backed by the research. Just look at, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link to this blog that collects like whatever, uh, several dozen studies <laughs> showing keto blowing the uh, low fat, high carb diet out of the water for weight loss and improvements and all these other parameters. But then you have to look at whether or not protein was equated in the comparisons. And when you, when you narrow down the research that equates protein, between the conditions, between the ketogenic condition and the non-ketogenic condition, when you equate protein and total calories, then there's no advantage of either diet in the improvement of uh, body fat reduction or lean body mass retention. So um, that's where you really kind of have to question the claims that keto is the end all, which some people genuinely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. believe. Couldn't agree more. And I remember reading a big meta-analysis probably about six months ago. I can't actually remember where it was from. And it was basically the same conclusion that ketogenic was as good as, but not better than any other type of calorie restriction. So it was kind of like, don't claim that it's better, but if it works for you, it works for you. You really got to find that individualized approach that helps you to lose the weight, but actually something that you can maintain as well. Because I think for a lot of people doing keto, they'll drop say like 20 kilos or 50 pounds or whatever it is. And then they get to the end and then they're like, oh, just go back to my normal eating habits because you can't cut out carbs for the rest of your life. And they put all the weight back on again. And then they think that keto is the only way that they can lose it. And that's how they link those two together. Not understanding that um, if you can't actually maintain it, 
what's the point of why even why even started in the very beginning because you know yo-yo dieting is is not great for our metabolism but we're not going to go there <laughs> right right and that is reflected in the meta-analysis uh well, maybe the best one done today that's very well organized methodologically and everything like that by Huntress and colleagues uh adherence was an issue in most of the studies mm. to the ketogenic diet even in a, um a, even in the uh the diabetic population who um you would presume to be much more motivated to get on this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, adherence is an issue that, that, uh, a lot of people are in denial of. So uh, I, I know that you've done, um, a lot of continuing education for dietitians, for fitness folks, physicians, et cetera. Um, and, and you can go in any room, any seminar room and ask for a show of hands of how many of you have tried a ketogenic diet? like a bona fide ketogenic diet, mm -hmm. you'll see a whole lot of hands go up. And then you ask the next question, how many of you are still <laughs> on the ketogenic diet? You'll see a whole crap load of hands just boop. Yeah. Oh, why is that? And are we going to be in denial of that? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. And I'm such a big believer in the fact that all foods can fit. Obviously, moderation is is very important, but it's like I'm somebody who, um, you know, loves some homemade pizza or who loves going out for ice cream or something like that. And I just couldn't realistically see keto fitting into my lifestyle for anything longer than maybe like a, an eight-week period. And again, you're getting stuck in that dieting mindset where you have that short-term goal in mind. It's like all the people that do those fitness challenges at the gym. The minute the challenge is over, they regain the weight. And sometimes plus some because they feel so restricted to begin with that they're blowing out even further after the diet's finished. So I think that's just something a lot of list, our listeners at home can really just sit back in and have a think about that if there's somebody who um, is stuck in that dieting mindset where they're constantly going on new diets and losing the weight, don't go down that rabbit hole of keto diet if you're not somebody that can realistically see yourself removing carbohydrates for a very long time. Right. And there are some people who can. And they love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I say good for them. But it's the claim that their way is the best way and everybody yes. should be doing it that way. That's where I've got an issue with that. Yeah, you and me both. So we won't go any further on that because I think it could, <laughs> you and me get very passionate about this issue, Alex. <laughs> so we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about, um, I'd love to hear your opinions because I know you do a lot of research in the field of, um, you know, body composition and that sort of thing. So I'd love to know your thoughts and where the research stands for people that say they want to lose weight and gain muscle at the same time, because I'm sure that you get that all of the time um, mm -hmm. from, you know, people on social media that say, I want to lose weight and tone up at the same time or get actively gain muscle at the same time. Yes. This phenomenon, the losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time, mm -hmm. is uh, we, we refer to it as recomposition or recomp. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a real phenomenon that's been uh, demonstrated and, and objectively you know, assessed and published and reported on everything uh, in several studies. And it typically happens with a combination of factors. So the population has, um, and there are some exceptions to this, which I'll talk about, but the population is typically untrained or detrained, de deconditioned. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of like newbies uh, or just fresh off the couch. And they've got the extra body fat to lose. Mm -hmm. So you can see recomp in over fat or overweight beginners. You can see it dramatically mm -hmm. where they're losing fat 
and gaining lean mass at the same time uh, over the course of uh, an eight to 12 week study. And that you can even see this in intermediate trainees. You can see uh, um, small but still significant amounts of recomposition happen in intermediate trainees who are, uh, as far as research definitions go, trained subjects. Well, the reality is trained subjects usually are anybody who's been training for more than six months to a year, and they can qualify as trained. Mm -hmm. Um, But recomp happens on a diminishing scale uh, according to how, um, how close you are to your potential for muscle gain or fat loss. So almost everybody will experience recomp as a beginner. Mm-hmm. And especially so if you have the body fat to lose as an untrained, just rank new beginner. The people who for whom it, it's unproductive to focus on recomposition goals are folks who have been training a while, folks who don't have a lot of body fat left to lose, mm-hmm. uh, and or those folks who are pretty close to their potential in terms of uh, mus- muscle size. Mm-hmm. So with more advanced, I'm, I want to say like higher end intermediates to advanced folks, it's much more productive and much more realistic to focus on one goal at a time, whether it's gaining muscle or whether it's losing fat. Love it. So for all the newbies out there, you have that advantage when we're talking about body pre-comp, take advantage of it. But as you said, as you said, Alan, if you're someone that's been training for, you know, six months to a year or just regularly exercising as well, it's probably easier um, to just focus on one goal at a time, isn't it? And kind of cycle between those periods of a deficit, get rid of some of that excess body fat, and then periods of a calorie surplus where you're actively trying to gain muscle. Because it is a lot easier to actively gain muscle in a surplus when you're not a newbie trainer. Yes, that's right. That's right. So so yeah, yeah, it, it gets harder and harder and less and less realistic mm-hmm. the further along your training age or your training status is mm-hmm. for recomp. Yeah. And I've definitely found that myself as well. I definitely don't try and do everything together. I did experience some of those newbie gains years ago, and mm-hmm. it really did take me a while to recognize that it is far easier to actively put on muscle in a, in a calorie surplus than it is yeah, to yeah. try and try and get some gains. Once you find yourself posing in the mirror of various like flexes and stuff, you know that your recomp days are limited. <laughs> Listeners at home, that is a very good tip. Now, Alan, I'd love to talk to you about dairy because I know that even just the different types of dairy around the world, like I know in Australia, we actually have some really top quality dairy. We don't have hormones and antibiotics and that sort of thing in our dairy. We have very strict regulations around dairy in Australia. But I know again in America, after visiting them myself and talking to some colleagues over there, um, you know, there are some traces of maybe hormones and antibiotics and that sort of thing in dairy. So it is a really big thing that a lot of professionals fight about online, you know, dairy inflammation, that sort of thing. So completely putting aside any ethical reason Mm -hmm. for wanting to consume Mm -hmm. dairy, this is purely whether research and science, I'd love to know what it shows around inflammation because I'm someone who I love dairy and I think it's a really nutritious food. But then you get those people that say, you know, dairy is so inflammatory, it's so bad for you. So I'd love to actually hear some of the current research and science around dairy and inflammation, regardless of, um, you know, not not thinking about the ethical um, side of dairy at the moment. Dairy is a, it's very controversial. Mm -hmm. One of the things that makes it controversial is when we speak about dairy as a homogeneous unit. Mm-hmm. Because there, there is a pretty wide spectrum of dairy foods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they, they've, um, they've had various uh, 
results as far as like the the health literature, health outcomes. Um, and, and so if we take a look at, at dairy, the different types of dairy, you'll see that fermented dairy, yogurts and, and that, that sort of thing, it's mostly good stuff. It's hard to find, it's hard to nail fermented dairy on anything bad. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. And then we go all the way to butter, uh, or as some people say, butter, <laughs> <laughs> then it's mostly bad. <laughs> it's hard to find. <laughs> it's hard to find good stuff about butter, right? And anytime you you run into a, a study that shows that butter didn't mess something up, you're all wow, great, yay, butter. But um, no, it's easy to find dirt on butter. Uh, and you got stuff in between. Okay, so you have whole fat milk, non-fat milk, low fat um, dairy stuff, and then you kind of have a mix of things. Uh, but on the whole, all together, if you maybe don't necessarily count in butter. It's mostly good. It's mostly positive uh, effects on a wide range of health outcomes. So that is the reality of the state of the evidence on dairy uh, as a singular group. And um, it's a tough pill for people to swallow because a lot of people are worried about dairy and inflammation. Mm-hmm. So what I would encourage anybody to do, and this is a really uh, simple search that even a, a layperson can do, just type into Google the word PubMed mm-hmm. and then the word dairy and then the word inflammation. Let me know what you see, what <laughs> you will see. <laughs> or how about this? This is even better. PubMed, dairy, inflammation, and then meta dash analysis. Mm. Then you will get these meta analyses of dairy and inflammation. And uh, you might be disappointed to find that dairy either has a neutral to favorable effect on inflammation. So uh, claims are really easy to make. It's just a whole lot harder to back them up. So we can claim this and that about dairy all day, and it just doesn't stand up to the evidence. Mm, love it. And then is there a lot of research, I guess, around, so again, probably looking, linking back to that inflammation as well. A lot of people say, you know, dairy, um, in terms of acne as well, like I get a lot of clients who will say to me, oh, I can't, like, the minute I eat dairy, my acne flares up. Yeah. Is that like a, I guess, like a placebo thought of thing or is there a little re- research? I have found a, f- a few studies, singular studies that have shown like low fat types of dairy um, and whey protein powder, for example, have small links to acne, but nothing conclusive. And as you said, no good studies like meta-analysis or anything like that. Um, do you have anything, I guess, further to add around eliminating dairy for acne and those sorts of hormonal conditions? Yeah. Uh, sometimes you, if you really love dairy, then unfortunately dairy is a potential factor Mm. in, uh, the, um, exacerbation of, of, of acne. Mm. Uh, that's unfortunate. And I wish, I, I mean, the dairy lover in me really wants to say that there is no evidence for that, but unfortunately there is. Um, but I would encourage folks who do like dairy it, uh, to just kind of go down the list uh, and see and maybe do some self-experimentation of which dairy products might be the offending agents because you don't always have to cut them out en masse. Mm-hmm. You don't have to just avoid dairy, period. Mm-hmm. So you can go through, if, if you have the patience and, and the gumption for it, go through like a, a elimination and reintroduction, see how you respond. Because unfortunately, uh, 
per the literature, it, it can be a factor in acne. Mm, and would you say as well, from what I was reading, it's more like the lower fat and like the skim type of dairy versus the full cream variety. Did you find that in the literature as well? Um, I found a mix of, mm. of different things. Mm-hmm. I found a, a, a very messy mix of different things. And it, it and unfortunately, there's such a small amount of literature. The, the majority of the, the literature on dairy and acne is observational. Yes. So um, they're not these very tightly done intervention studies mm-hmm. where they can really isolate the dairy and the type of dairy, mm-hmm. much less. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it, it is kind of a mess. I can't say strongly one way or another whether it's the lower fat stuff that mm. does most of the, the, you know, gives people most of the problems. Mm, yeah, that was the same when I was sort of hunting around, I guess, because I just had so many clients saying it back to me that, it, you know, it, it may impact, it may not. And I thought I'd really love to give them some more answers. But as you said, the research is just not as strong as some of the other research we know in nutrition science. And a lot of it is or was very like self-reported. It was like they were talking to a 30-year-old who may have had dairy in their teens and they were asking whether or not they thought dairy affected them. So it was yes. relying on those sort of um, you know self-reported um, and then how much did you used to have when you were 16 and now you're 30. So mm-hmm. I guess we really do would love some more um, really strong research in, in the field of acne and dairy to really come to anything conclusive, wouldn't we? Yes, yes, definitely. And I would mainly just not want people to jump to assumptions and then cut everything out because – Mm. Uh, dairy is an important nutrient source for a range of nutrients for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And so when, when there people are advised to, okay, just cut dairy out, then they can significantly impact the quality of their diet if they just do that without making the adjustments that would, uh, make up for the nutrients that they're missing out on. So I would, I would be careful about that. Definitely. And I think a great time just to for our listeners at home to remember that um, everything that we always recommend on these podcasts are general recommendations, and it is really recommended to book in with um, like someone like a one-on-one dietitian for an appointment so you can actually get some personalized advice. And if you're someone that consumes, like I consume quite a lot of dairy a day, if I was to cut all that out, again, I'd be lacking in, um, you know, some like I use dairy a lot for protein, for example, because I don't need a lot of animal-based products. And so I'd be lacking in my protein, you know, amount for the day, calcium, that sort of thing. So I think it is important to get um, a consultation from a professional as well if you're thinking about removing or reducing or cutting things out from your diet. Yes, absolutely. Now, Alan, I'd love to talk to you about highly processed foods. So again, a lot of the fitness professionals online say, you know, eat what you want, tracking macros, flexible dieting. And I know the school of thought from the majority of dietitians is that we are okay with people having these foods in small amounts, but it's not like you can just do flexible dieting, lose fat purely on overly processed foods because the satiety and that feeling of fullness and the fiber for gut health and all that sort of thing, it's not there with highly processed foods. And I get so many people saying to me every day, like, I know I only eat 1,200 calories a day because I put it in my fitness pal and I'm like, you know, use the error. And they say, no, I scan everything in. I'm like, if the if you're eating products that are only scannable, like we have a problem there because you're eating highly processed products all day long. So I'd love to hear your opinion on um, refined or highly processed products, flexible dieting, if it fits your macros, that sort of thing, because it is really quite big and trendy at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um- there was a big controversy over the concept of uh, hitting your macros any which way but loose, and then you'll hit your body comp goals. Yeah. And um, that is true technically, but uh, sustainability-wise uh, and long-term health-wise, then there can be some issues there. So 
Um, if we were to look at the concept of processed foods, um, we would have to delineate the food processing. We'd have to make make some sort of distinction between that versus highly refined foods that are maybe ultra processed. So um, food processing as a general concept is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when you look at things from the standpoint of the human body being actually a food processor, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> <Very true. laughs> uh, um, cooking is a form of processing. And uh, at times cooking can actually in- increase the nutrition bioavailability of foods. Uh, even, gosh, food rarely doesn't go through some degree of processing. Mm-hmm. So I want to establish that part. Now, where things get a little bit dangerous is when you go from processing to highly refining a food and combining it with other refined foods that render the food hyper palatable, Mm -hmm. meaning, um, very easy to overconsume due to its, uh, organoleptic qualities. So, um, so in other words, there is a such thing as food that's processed and refined and engineered to the degree that they are easy to eat too much of without you necessarily intending to. Mm -hmm. So if we were to look at a diet that was um, predominated by highly processed, ultra-refined type of foods, then that diet would have a much lower effect on satiety than a food that is uh, predominated by whole and minimally refined foods. Mm -hmm. And there are always exceptions to that rule, and protein powder is probably the easiest exception to point out, being a a highly engineered type, type of food that wouldn't necessarily qualify as junk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with with the processed foods thing, there is the issue of passive overconsumption uh, due to a lack of ability to, for these foods to control hunger and, and appetite. And then there is the other element of just long term health and and uh, what do these foods contain and 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 um, are you improving the quality of your diet from a micronutrient density standpoint from uh even not not even necessarily uh, micronutrients but even things like fiber yeah. uh, even things like uh, non-essential uh, types of compounds in the diet that would be preventive uh, toward chronic disease like like polyphenols uh, like uh, various plant-borne compounds that would um, normally get kicked out during the, the refinement process. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's there's different facets to to look at with this concept. Mm-hmm. And I loved how you mentioned the the hyperpalatability of food. And I'm sure that listeners at home have have experienced it where you you just go to take a couple of chips out of the bag and you can't stop eating it before you know it. You finish the entire bag of chips. And I'm sure that And I'm sure I've read research to actually support this where food companies actually, they spend, you know, millions, probably billions of dollars, some of these massive companies getting the exact ratio of the salt and the sugar and the fat in the food absolutely perfect Mm -hmm. to make it this hyper palatable food. It's like the Pringles um, slogan, once you pop, you can't stop. Yes. <laughs> like they do it on purpose, don't they? Mm-hmm. To make these foods so hyper palatable that we literally cannot stop eating them. Yes. And that's good that you bring that up because 
hyperpalatability is where a lot of the anti-carb movement comes from. That's where a lot of the pro-keto, carbophobic sentiment comes from. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of hyperpalatable foods are a combination, uh, roughly an even combination calorie-wise, of carbs and fat. Mm -hmm. And so they are just an amalgamation of those things. And so uh, it's easy to point the finger at carbs being the bad guy. But then we sort of forget that, okay, it's this combination of carbs and fat and, uh, and just, just flavoring salt, you know, um, that, that really draws people and really sort of stimulates those neural reward centers um, and then facilitates this passive overconsumption. Um, and a lot of people forget that it's not just carbohydrate that can be hyperpalatable. Uh, there can be um, combinations of protein and fat, or bacon. <laughs> there can be uh, just just the flavor of certain foods, and just even um, it, it's entirely possible to create hyperpalatable foods from any number of uh, macronutrient combinations, as as long as you can create that effect. Mm. So, so yeah, yeah, and and it's much harder to find hyperpalatability in foods with a lower degree of refinement and processing. Mm, definitely. And I love how you brought up the, the processing of food as well, because that is super important. And I always like to say to people, like, think about how the, the food processing your food's undergone. Like, think about a corn of cob versus a corn tortilla versus a bag of Doritos. Like, you've got three separate levels of processing and, you know, your body's going to absorb less from the corn of cob versus the highly processed bag of Doritos. And you're going to eat a lot more of the Doritos than you would have, you know, the corn of the cob for the similar amount of calories. You know, you might only tap out after a couple of hundred calories of corn, yet you could easily smash a couple of thousand calories you know, bag or two of Doritos. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. And and the question then becomes, is there room for these foods in the diet? Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another raging debate. Some people are very puritanical with their view and very black and white and say, no, you got to cut those foods out. And, you, you know, and th- that's fine as an idea. Yeah. Uh, and it's a good conversation point. But then we always have to look at the research evidence, look at the scientific evidence, and what does the weight of the scientific evidence say? Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately for proponents of people who really want things black and white, really want a 100% in quotes clean diet, uh, the research does not support that type of thinking or that type of approach for the sustainability of uh, a healthy diet and, and also for the control of body weight and also for the minimizing of the adverse uh, effects of uh, developing eating disorders, for example. Yeah. So um, taking a black and white approach has been shown in the majority of the literature to not be the best way to go. So we, for, for whoever um, is, is open to the idea of having a balanced diet, and, and some people, I, I'll, I'll always go to the fact that there will be a small handful of people who will be just fine on kind of a very militant, mm-hmm. zero indulgence foods approach, and they're happy and they live happy long lives. Great. Mm-hmm. But for the majority of the population, it becomes important to be able to work in uh, all types of foods. Mm-hmm. It just is a matter of uh, teaching people what's a healthy allowance of that kind of thing. 
And so, um, historically, and, and it's hard to find specific research, uh, that, that has arrived at this in a very controlled way, but as long as roughly 80% of the diet consists of your, your wholesome stuff, Mm -hmm. and then 10 to 10 to 20 ish percent can, can be, uh, the discretionary or, or the, the naughty stuff. Yeah. Then most people will live long, healthy lives and they'll be able to sustain their diets. Could agree more. All about that balance. And I definitely could not give up wine and pizza. That's, they're like my soul foods. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Now, lastly, Alan, I'd love to ask you about biohacking. So it's sort of like, again, a trendy little term. A lot of people are sort of talking about biohacking. It's a term that does get thrown around a lot, like biohacking your own health. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? And is it all just a whole lot of BS or are there some things that we can do to sort of level up and, and hack our health almost? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's mostly it's mostly BS. It's, it's it really it genuinely is, mm-hmm. and the reason why it's mostly BS is because the the people who have succeeded in pushing these ideas out are quacks. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be way different if if genuine nutrition scientists got together and said, "How can we possibly in quotes hack the aging process nutritionally?" That's different. Um, but unfortunately, the, 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 these biohacking principles floating around in the public, they've come down to putting butter and MCT oil in your specialized coffee. <laughs> uh, that's just a bunch of bunk, really. And the only and, and, and terminology matters. I, I, I think that biohacking implies that you're somehow violating or or circumventing. Uh, physiological, known physiological laws, known physical mm-hmm. laws. And that's just not true. It's, it's just a matter of figuring the body out. Like you can say that um, the, 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 the group out of McMaster's, uh, Stu Phillips and colleagues, you can say that, oh, they potentially hacked um, uh, the, the, the aging process with respect to protein intake. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of research uh, on protein intake in, ter- in terms of type, dose, distribution through the day uh, for staving off things like sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. And okay, so we hacked that, great. But with biohacking, you're normally looking at very far-fetched claims uh, that, that have minimal to no support in the scientific literature. And I, I would even say that, that the word biohacking is a is a red flag mm-hmm. for people to be extremely cautious and skeptical and even just run the other direction really it, mm-hmm. it's really attracted a group of uh of folks and in a, a particular mindset um that just gravitates towards unsupported therapies and i'm not a, i'm not a big fan I have to say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And a lot of the time, these, you know, biohacking, um, I guess, therapies are very, very expensive. Like I've seen a lot of, a few companies, even here in Australia and in America, promoting like IV therapy, like massive doses of nutrients and that sort of thing, using an IV as like a way to sort of biohack yourself and make yourself 10 times healthier and starve off aging and cellulite and all sorts of ridiculous claims. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fan. 
Show me the evidence. Love it. <laughs> it's not there. Now, lastly, my final question for you, final, final, Alan, is what is your advice? You do it so wonderfully, sifting through all the BS and actually giving us tangible um, nutrition science. But what is your advice for, I guess, the, the general population listening in today? How can they sift through the BS online and actually find credible information that is evidence-based? How can they know? And, you know, we talked about this at the very beginning of podcast one, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean what you're saying is right or just because you're a you know personal trainer with a sick pack doesn't mean that what you're saying is right even just because you're a dietitian may not mean that you're correct so how can the public get a better bs radar for the things that they're hearing and seeing online hundreds of times a day if i were to be 100 honest um uh, i i'm very worried about the general public <laughs> uh, i don't i honestly don't know what they can do outside of following folks like you following folks like myself and just a handful of other and our students basically mm-hmm. <laughs> following mm-hmm. folks like you me and, and our students <laughs> um but but that's not necessarily practical advice uh for nutrition and health, it, it's it's a minefield. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say, be extremely skeptical, and don't just jump to believing everything you hear from from the charming celebs out there. Uh, anytime a celebrity endorses a particular therapy or comes out with their own line of protocols or products, that's just a huge, huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime that. A particular diet or diet paradigm is touted as being special or better than everything else. That's another huge red flag. Uh, what people need to cozy up to the idea of is that the diet that that consists of the foods that they personally like or even love uh, and can stick to, and as long as within that framework they are biasing the diet towards whole foods, minimally refined foods, and and a minority of the indulgence foods or the junk or the YOLO foods, Mm -hmm. Uh, then the actual composition and the food sources and stuff, there's a huge variation that can be perfectly fine for the individual. So um, anytime that people uh, hear the claim that this diet is the universal best way to go mm-hmm. and any diet with a name to it, uh, run the other direction. If somebody names a damn diet, it's, it's bunk. Mm-hmm. Um, I regrettably, uh, I wrote a book with Lou Schuler and Rodale publishing wanted us to call it the lean muscle diet, which is the stupidest freaking name of any diet book in the history of diet books. I hated it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that I, I would encourage people to run the other way if they read the title. That <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually it a great book. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's got great content, but still, generally you will dodge a bullet if a stupid uh, diet has a stupid name to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need to know principles rather than uh, products and, and brands of diet. Mm-hmm. So that's a really tough question, Leanne. I, I really don't know how to adequately answer that other than follow me, 
<laughs> Follow folks like yourself. 100%. No, I think you did give some really great tangible advice. And I think you will never see folks like you and me promoting like this diet or this exact way to go. And I think if somebody is telling you to do something and then selling you something, that should be a big red flag. If it's like, this is the only thing that you should be doing. Oh, I sell it on my website. That should be a huge red flag. Like I always say to people, I'm not profiting from my podcast. I don't, I'm not sponsoring every episode with my own vitamin range. I'm not, you know, saying this is the, the, the protocol you should be following. It's not sponsored by celery juice and I'm telling everyone to drink celery juice. You know, I'm not saying it's going to cure everything. I'm just, I get a range of different experts on here having conversations around a range of different things. And as Mm -hmm. we mentioned in the very first podcast um, with you and I, we talked a little bit about the blue zones and how so many different things work for so many different population groups. So the minute somebody puts a label on something and the minute something becomes black or white, you should do this and you can't do this. I think that should be a huge red flag to people. Shouldn't There's a list of do this and don't do this. Yes. Yes. And and for the practitioners out there, what I've found useful is to become familiar with the position stands of the major organizations on these various topics. Mm-hmm. So you can always uh, look that up. So for example, for um, diets and body composition, mm-hmm. the International Society of Sports Nutrition has a position stand on diets and body composition. And I know this because I'm, I'm the lead author of it. And I know that I lost uh, a lot of hair and, and got a lot of gray hair over it. So please read it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I have read it. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So um, the major organizations like mm-hmm. um, the uh, Dietitians of Australia or the the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they'll have their position stands on uh, things like uh, pediatric nutrition or nutrition and pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, and even for things like exercise, you'll you'll see the position stands of the um, American College of Sports Medicine or the National uh, or, or the National Strength and Conditioning Association, and so position stands of these large organizations um, are a safe bet in getting the state of the evidence on, on certain topics. You're not going to find all the topics. You're not going to find a position stand on celery juice and things like that. <laughs> but for a lot of the major kind of umbrella mm-hmm. topics, mm-hmm. It, it is a safe bet to look up the position stands of um, like those organizations that I mentioned, International Society of Sports Nutrition, um, uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and, and the various the various biggies. Uh, aside from that, follow us, <laughs> follow, follow the, follow the science folks. Love it. And Alan, I'd love you to give a little plug to some of your friends and colleagues out there who maybe don't have huge followings, but put out incredible content. Can you think of anyone off the top of your head that you could just give a plug for a couple of your, your friends out there who don't have these, you know, hundreds of thousands, they're not these influencers, but it would be so great if all our listeners could actually jump on and go follow some of these great, credible people. Have you got anyone that springs to mind that really does deserves more of a following on social media because their content is, is great? Um, that is a question that would require some thought on my part. Because I've I've been in this game for so long that I can picture me dishing out some names and then twelve people like being pissed off at me. For, and then you get for, in trouble. And then I, and absolutely then I understand. <laughs> <laughs> we do not want that to happen. We just, I've worked so so hard to get you on this podcast. I want to keep you happy by the end of it. <laughs> So yeah, I'll, I'll have to think more on that. No worries at all, Alan. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners at home um, where they can find you and follow you on social media. Very important. Alan puts up just 
incredible content, but in a way that is just so easy to read and understand. So please definitely go and follow Alan. Um, he's at the Alan Aragon on Instagram and Twitter, but also tell our listeners a little bit about your website, Alan, and about your research um, library and reviews as well. Sure. You can find me at alanaragon.com. That's where you can find the some free articles, a bunch of uh, my peer-reviewed stuff, as well as the non-peer-reviewed stuff as well. Um, that's where you can find my research review, which is my baby, which is uh, it's basically my life's work, which I've been um, just amassing uh, what, what I would like to think is the most epic collection of uh, r- fitness literature in the world, right? So um, you can find that at alanaragon.com. I am active on Instagram and Facebook and occasionally on Twitter when I just want to kind of blurt things out. You blurt it out on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's really interesting. I, I've, I've had people encourage me to get on TikTok as well. Alan, you need to. I've started. It's, it's so fun. It's so addictive. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not on there yet, but uh, I'm going to have one of my... Uh, one of my colleagues yell at me. Oh, okay. Here, here's who I can point people to. Yeah, Jordan Syatt. Yeah, I know Jordan's been on the podcast actually. Yeah, Jordan Syatt. I'm just gonna just gonna point people to him, mm-hmm. uh, and and everybody else. Uh, I mean, there, there's a huge list of, of people who I would love to point to, but I want to at least be able to honor your your question and not leave you high and dry. So, so yeah, Jordan is a great guy to follow, and he, he's encouraged me to get on on. TikTok or else. So I'm feeling that <laughs> pressure. <laughs> well, Alan, I'm gonna I'm gonna double Jordan's pressure and you need to get on it. It's it's so fun. It's such an interactive platform at the moment and it's growing very rapidly. The engagement is is incredible. So definitely join. I think you'll I think you'll love it. <laughs> oh no, more pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well Alan, thank you so much for coming back and doing another wonderful second podcast with us. I, I'm so flattered to have you on. Um, it's been a, a wonderful chat. And guys, please make sure you do go and follow Alan on social media because the content he puts out is so it's relevant it's up to date and it's a whole no bs approach is what I absolutely love the most about you Alan so thank you so much (laughs) thank you right back it's been a pleasure would love to do it again amazing we'll catch you guys in the next podcast